Welcome to Adoption Unfiltered, a podcast about examining various viewpoints of lived adoption experiences. Your hosts, Sarah Easterly, Kelsey Vanderbilt-Rainyard, and Lori Holden, occupy three corners of the adoption triad, and we invite you to join us as we cover sensitive and timely issues from the perspectives of an adoptee, a birth parent, and an adoptive parent. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Adoption Unfiltered. I'm an adoptee, Sarah Easterly, and I'm joined here today by birth parent Kelsey Vanderleet Ranyard and adoptive parent Lori Holden. And we have a very special guest with us as well, Melissa Guida Richards, an adoptee. Thank you for joining us today, Melissa. So glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to sit down <laughs> with you guys. Great. Um, just a quick introduction before we before we jump in, um, just to to share a little bit with our audience who you are, if they don't already know you. I know you're a very familiar name in adoption land. Um, Melissa is an author. She's an adoptee. She's an advocate. Uh, Melissa was adopted from Colombia in 1993 to a family in the USA. Um, she is the podcast host of Adoptee Thoughts. She's also the author of This Gem, What White Parents Should Know About Transracial Adoption. Melissa is also a late discovery adoptee. Uh, she didn't learn until the age of 19 that she was adopted. So we have all kinds of things that we're planning to talk with you about today, Melissa. And I think the first is just um, your book, just, you know, what... I, I'm, it seems like a dumb question, but I just love to hear you share the background. And I know you're, you've been a writer for a long time. Uh, in fact, we crossed paths in writing, I think before we crossed paths in adoption. So that was kind of cool. Um, but I would love to just hear you talk about what inspired you to write the book and um, tell us a little bit about your personal journey as part of that too, if you would. Yeah, of course. Um, so about now it's been 11 years. Um, after finding out that I was adopted at 19, I'm now 30. Uh, it's definitely been a whirlwind of emotions. And in the beginning, there was a lot of anger um, from myself and from my adoptive parents. And so just like broaching the topic of adoption was like taboo. It was like one of those trigger words that you know you're not supposed to talk about at the holiday party um, <laughs> because of the chaos it can ensue. Um, but me being me, I I'm a very honest and upfront person. So I was like, no, we have to talk about this. But for the first year or so, we really didn't know how to go about it. So that's when I kind of started delving into adoption and learning past the what we see in movies because all I had known up until that point is from what I've seen in Little Orphan Annie and all of those things and so for me I was grappling with the idea of just like well lying about adoption was bad that hurt me but my parents are still my parents and I love them but I was really hurt and they said that well if it wasn't for them I'd be on the street or doing x y and z some horrible horrible things and I also didn't really like that either because I'm like, why does it have to be one way or the other way? Like adoption, it, it seems simple from the outside, but when you're in the thick of it now, all of a sudden you're starting to see things in a way that you never really expected. And so 
ironically enough, I was in um, my cross-cultural counseling classes and I was learning about identity, racial identity of uh, white people and racial identity of people of color. And I was looking through the different identity models and it was weird, like growing up and being raised to be culturalized and like assimilated into what white people should go through. But here I had been struggling through all these different steps that people of color can go through. So I didn't really know where I fit in there either, even though there was like, oh, this is how your identity should develop. There really wasn't a transracial adoptee identity, identity development model back then. And so again, like I, I would come home on breaks because in college, like I was like eight hours away. So like during Thanksgiving and Christmas and the summer breaks, I would come home and I would sit at the kitchen table with my mom and dad, my adoptive parents, I could just call them mom and dad. Um, and these kitchen conversations were where everything kind of shifted. There were moments where my mom would get super passionate about it. And you could see that like, she loved me so much. And she believed with like all of her heart that she did the best that she could. And she made the right choices and she was just trying. And my dad kind of was just like, we wanted children your mother raises the kids like that was her job she kind of took the reins on that and here I was trying to explain this to two immigrant parents <laughs> that really weren't open about feelings and emotions in the first place and now well, this is all we're talking about uh I was just like why why isn't there a resource why is there nothing out there I was literally like up in the middle of the night typing like adopted from Columbia like discovery adoptee like what do you do when you find out you're adopted like and there was like such little information except for like yahoo forums for adopted people and then I stumbled upon like facebook groups for Colombian adoptees specifically and now up until that point I hadn't even met an adopted person in person <laughs> that I knew and that I talked about so everything was online so I was like, this has to change. And I started doing research. And um, in college, I just kind of fell into writing on the side and it became very therapeutic for me. And I kind of just let it settle. And then I had my own children after college. And that was really when I full like blasted out of the fog. And I had really changed my whole perception of adoption. And I felt finally ready to share my view and how it affected me with my parents. And that's when I wrote the first HuffPo article and like things kind of took off from there, um, just sharing my story about being a late discovery adoptee. And so I ended up just like talking to other adoptees that I connected to on Twitter. And I was throwing around the ideas, like what if there was a book for adopted parents, like a guidebook. And I connected with an editor at North Atlantic Books. And as a lot of people say, the rest was history there. I ended up publishing that one, which um, got star reviews and um, like Library Journal and Publishers Weekly. And then they asked me to do a follow-up, which just came out in July. It's the workbook. And I collaborated with Marcella Maslow. Um, she's a licensed social worker who has who is also an adoptee herself. Um, you may have heard of her. She's starting to do social media this year. And she is super talented, super insightful and has worked with dozens and dozens of adoptees so we just wanted to make like a more 
comprehensive resource that people could put their hands on and like do the activities because in my first book there's so much information that it can kind of feel overwhelming and I knew that going in but like no book is going to have all the answers right so um, this is where we've settled so far and I'm really happy with how both projects have come out and the the reception has honestly been really amazing so far. I know that adoptive parents is one of your prime audiences and as one of them, what, I, what I've heard so much from attachment therapists and people who are really working on connection is that it's not so much what happens to you, although that's a big thing, it's also how supported you are in processing that story and all of that story. So you had a double dose of that. You had the adoption piece, which was kept from you for a while. And then you also had the transracial piece, which was also kept from you for a while, right? So what can you say, Melissa, about speaking to adoptive parents about becoming more easeful in entering into the conversations about these two hard topics, ad adoption and race, and why is it hard? I think it's hard primarily because of like where we are. There has been a lot of secrecy just shrouding the adoption general uh, industry in general in the United States. And like back in the day, they used to like match babies with their adoptive parents. So nobody would know that the child was adopted. Like that was the best case scenario that the kid wouldn't find out. Nobody else would find out. There wouldn't be any stigma. And so even though it's become more mainstream, there still is that stigma there's still those jokes about being the adopted child like oh your mom didn't want you this and that and so I think there's a lot of fear that adoptive parents have and so just like with transracial adoption and talking about race I think that starting the conversation as early as possible helps set up those stepping blocks so as things become more complex as a child gets older and they're learning more parts of their story you have that foundation to build upon so like for me for example I didn't find out till I was 19 and one of the things that my parents could have and should have done was just normalize adoption language so when a baby starts getting a little older and asking like well mommy how did I get here you don't tell that child that was adopted that they came from your tummy. You explain to them, you had another mom. Uh, she calls herself her birth mom, or in my case, Sandra. You tell them what information that you have in age appropriate ways. So like, you're not gonna wanna overhaul like a young child with a traumatic past like F4. Like that's, that's not what adoptees are saying when we're saying being open and honest. We're saying give age appropriate information, normalize conversations, including terms like birth mom, first parent, uh, birth father. Just these things can help that child grow and have like a framework to ask more questions as they get older. And that kind of opens the door to further conversations that the family can have. And when it comes to transracial adoption, it's a similar thing. Like your, your child is not going to wake up one day and just know about microaggressions, micro insults, about all these overt forms of racism. No, one day they're going to come home from school and something's going to feel off. And if you haven't talked to them about people's different cultures and different skin colors and different ancestry, they're not going to have that framework. But even though I didn't have that, I still felt 
ostracized and I was being bullied. I was being told that I couldn't play with another kid uh, in kindergarten because I was brown. And like these things were happening, but my parents had never talked about race before. They were just in the mindset, just like color doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, unless you are a person of color walking out into the world, you will never fully understand that experience. The best that you can do is to learn as much as possible from experts, from people who have lived through it. There's so many transracial adoptees that do workshops and write books nowadays. And then we have wonderful communities like you guys with birth parents and uh, first parents and adoptees and foster youth that are opening up these conversations so adoptive parents can learn and have that kind of arsenal um, in their back pocket. So they're not starting off like my parents did with next to nothing. I can see in the coming years, uh, the same conversation happening for donor conceived adults. When you were talking about how uh, people were matched at one point by based on could they look like a normal family, a non-adopted family uh, with donor conceived, you can do that even more easily. And, um, you know, as, as donor conceived children become adults and come out of their fog and start speaking up about not knowing their origins at the beginning, um, I, I can see that this conversation will be relevant for them as well. Just because we can hide it doesn't mean we should hide it. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of um, donor conceived adults now like speaking out about their experiences like on TikTok and Instagram. And they relate a lot with adoptees, particularly like discovery adoptees like myself. And I also want to add, Lori, when you said just because you can doesn't mean you should. Also, we really can't because anonymity doesn't exist anymore. So if you think that you can, you you can't. So get over it. You can't do that and move on. <laughs> it, that is true. There's usually a, an end period nowadays with all these DNA tests and everything. Yeah, all will be revealed. And then the question becomes, why would we want to keep it secret? Like what's under that? Because that not dealing in what is truthful is probably eventually going to be problematic for somebody. So I think that needs to be brought to the surface. Melissa, I want to ask you um, just about your mom. She's your mom has, I've seen your mom in so many of your different um, interviews and conversations. So I'm bringing her up. And if it's unfair, just tell me um, we won't, but she, it seems like she's come a really long way in 11 years. And oh, yeah. And, and I'm sure there are a lot of parents who need to come a long way. So what have you seen? Like what helped that? And what things has she, what have you seen and that you're really proud of that she's grown and what, what's, what's that been like from your perspective? I think the best thing that my mom ever did was to be willing to make mistakes. And she wasn't always ready to understand that they were mistakes, but that takes time um, and it took a lot of time for us to just understand one another and so I think when she started listening to me and my story and just listening to me as if I was almost like a person she met at the doctor's office or something some somebody who was just opening up about their worst days and their best days and everything 
And like, would you argue with that person's feelings with that lived experience? Would you tell them like, no, you're wrong. You're, you're remembering it wrong, this and that. So I think like her being able to finally put herself in my shoes, opened her eyes and her heart to understanding that adoption wasn't just from her side of the view. And for so many adopted parents, like that's the narrative that we're used to. Like we hear about adoption because a lot of families are struggling with infertility or they want to adopt for altruistic reasons. But we're just starting in these past few decades, start to hear from more adoptees and from this uh, side of it as we get older and able to articulate for ourselves. And so what really helped us was I started writing and just like emailing her and be like, hey, I need you to read this because I'm going to talk about this, but I want to make sure that you know it first. I'm not hiding anything from you. There's no more secrets in our relationship. So we have been completely open and honest. And if she doesn't agree with me now, she'll tell me. She will not hesitate. We are not a shy family. She will flat out say, Melissa, I don't know what you're talking about. That is just wild. Like, I, you lost me there. <laughs> but she's listening, you know? Like, she's not perfect. She's just like any other person. I'm not a perfect parent. Nobody is. But the fact that she's willing to try, I think that's the biggest thing there. And I tell adoptive parents and... Uh, professionals that I work with like just get ready to be uncomfortable like if you're uncomfortable then you're doing something right because you're gonna learn from it I love hearing that about you and your adoptive mom and how the the love and the listening kind of glued you together even though you had some things to get over and you both continue to have things to get over as people do in any relationship did you find out what it was that kept your parents from being able to have that conversation with you before you were 19 there was a lot of stigma for my mom. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, like my, my family is a very conservative immigrant um, European family. My, um, my mom immigrated from Portugal when she was about seven, eight, I think. Um, and my dad was a little older. He was like 13, 14. And so all her life, she was raised like your job is to grow up one day, get married, have kids raise the house, take care of the home, make sure there's a warm meal on the table for your husband. And after many, many years of trying, they weren't able to have kids biologically. And my parents were also very skeptical of Western medication. So it wasn't even on the table for them to consider things like IVF or in vitro and like all those things. So for them, um, they kind of stumbled upon Colombian adoption. Um, and so by the time it was said and done and they had adopted me, they initially had started taking me to like those um, like lunches with other adoptees when I was a very, very young baby, like a few months old. Um, but it became more expensive over time. And then as she brought me into the fold of our family, she told me that she was starting to really understand how she was like protective of me as a mother. And her like biggest fear was that the family would reject us because we're not blood. The family would reject us because not only are we adopted, but we are two Latino kids with no ties to this family. Like we're from a completely different country. And unfortunately a lot of 
my my dad's side in particular um, struggled with deep prejudices against all people of color. And so that was part of her kind of way to protect us um, for both things. I can kind of understand that idea of um, being seeped in otherness and experiencing a lot of otherness that assimilation would become a big priority and minimizing differences. So I can see how that might happen. Yeah, yeah, that is that is so true because a lot of it, they experienced a lot of discrimination when they came here. My dad was called um, names for being Italian and not speaking English. And um, so they, they understood that struggle in that regard. And she, my mom has always been super protective of me and my brother. She has mama bear to a T. <laughs> So Melissa, just, um, you know, as a transracial adoptee, what was that, what was that experience like? I mean, now we understand your parents, but what, you know, motivation, but what was that like for you? What was that experience like, um, out in the world, um, with that kind of assimilation mentality? And yet we know you and I both know as adoptees <laughs> feel different. And then you have the race factor. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, from a very young age, um, I always noticed that I was different. And I know it sounds cliche, but I was being picked on by other kids since like kindergarten. So it just kind of became a thing where I was like, oh, it's just because like I'm from this immigrant family. My family's weird compared to every other American family here. Like we don't have anything to relate to. It's okay. <laughs> so I just kind of like pushed to the side. I would ask my parents over and over again. And it seemed like part of me always wanted like that missing piece. I always wanted more information. And so I never stopped searching. Like from, I, I was a young age. I remember in like elementary school, having to bring like my birth certificate to school and me coming home and asking my parents, like, why is it in Spanish? Like, why are your names and everything is written in Spanish? That's weird. Like, why did you have me overseas? Like things weren't lining up. And then I was starting to grow up in a white suburbs of New York. And I started to figure out like who I was fitting in with more. And my parents were pushing me one way towards other Italian American families. And I was absolutely not with them. <laughs> I just naturally gravitated towards the kids of Cutler that were in my school. I hung out with a lot of Latinos. I had a lot of black and Asian friends and it, it just, it felt right to me. And every it seemed like everybody else was in on the joke almost and they except for me I just didn't know like I was that oblivious because I was like I fit in here but you know I'm still Italian Portuguese and so I kind of just ripped onto that because that's the only thing that made sense if I kept questioning it then that would make me second guess me and so when I found out at 19, it was kind of just like that, that cover, that bed sheet was ripped off of me and I could not hide from it anymore. All these experiences that I had were very clearly microaggressions and overt forms of racism that I just simply did not have a frame of reference for before. So it was incredibly exhausting and just devastating to realize that 
because I was trying to figure out like, well, if color doesn't matter, just like it matters how you act towards other people and like treat people how you want to be treated. Like that's what I was taught. But here I am being respectful, being responsible, and people are still not treating me that way. I would walk into stores and people would treat me differently. I would go to my uh, job at my dad's restaurant and people would come up to me speaking down to me because they would assume that I couldn't speak English, that I was a help in the back, just washing dishes or the staff. And then their behavior would completely turn when they found out that my dad owned the restaurant and he was the Italian chef. And so like knowing these things and now being able to identify them as an adult was just like this huge culture shock. And I did not have anybody to talk about it with except for my boyfriend and a few friends. Because still a lot of people were just like, you were adopted, you're lucky, you know, you have no reason to be upset. <laughs> so I was dealing with like both things of like coming out of the fog and the identity thing. So it's kind of like I had to choose a struggle to deal with. And so I kind of just just like, I have to finish college. I have to just survive. And I kind of pushed aside the transracial part for a few years. I, I dabbled in trying to join Latinos Unidos communities in college, but every time I would show up, I would feel like a complete outsider and people would ask, well, where are you from? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Do you have an hour? <laughs> because it's not a simple answer. And so I just kind of gave up on trying until I had my own kids. And then I was like, you know what? I, it's not just for me. It's for my family. And prioritizing my kids was a little easier. And so that's when I really started to dig into my roots and wanting to find out more about my ancestry. My husband gifted me a 23andMe test. So that kind of helped me narrow down because Colombians um, were a mix of different things. I'm multiracial. So I'm indigenous, I'm European, and I have some African roots as well. But like just saying Colombian, that could have meant anything. So just even having those little chart breakdowns in the DNA test like was a huge moment for me because I was like, I really am Colombian. Like it's there. And then uh, like a year and a half ago, I got my Colombian passport. I have dual citizenship. And I'm just like all of my life, these things were taken and kept from me. And now I've been able to reclaim them slowly but surely and it's been so healing and like on my desk I have my little Mirabel doll that my sister-in-law gifted from Encanto it's my family's favorite movie and just like these little things that are now part of my day-to-day -day life that have made me feel at home in my identity as a Latina woman as a woman of color and just more comfortable in my own skin you're embracing your Colombian um, culture now it's so inspiring and how is that going for you in terms of you know reconciling like you know there's language barriers and I'm assuming um, how how is that transition going as you navigate I know you're in reunion um, and still kind of in process of reunion how is how how are you reconciling everything so as my story has unfolded like um I had to, there's like two parts of my reunion so far. I found two birth sisters that were adopted a few years prior to me to another American family. And thankfully there's no language barrier there. And we were actually able to meet in person about a year ago 
Um, we filmed a mini documentary that never aired because COVID. <laughs> uh, but we did have the opportunity to meet in person and we talk all the time. I reconnected with my birth mom, Sandra, about three-ish, I think if I'm remembering correctly, about three years ago. And for the first like year and a half, I always had to use um, a translator. And that was a huge struggle because not only is it like connecting with a person that you've never met before, but like having these really tough conversations through a third party. So that was like an awkward time. And it was really hard to kind of like form any type of connection or bond. And it was much easier to be like, well, I have sisters that I can relate to. I'm going to put more effort there because it's easier. But after I met my sisters, like we talked a lot more. We were able to video chat our birth mother all together. Um, and that was like a huge moment for me, just seeing her face to face for the first time, other than just like a tiny little picture that was texted to me. Um, it, it was unreal. And I was like, okay, I really have to kick this into gear. I have to practice my Spanish more. And I'm a little more fortunate than some of my siblings because I grew up um, with Italian and Portuguese spoken in my household. So I was pretty fluent in Italian, which has made the transition to understanding Spanish pretty well. Like I can understand 75 to 80%, depending on the speed. <laughs> Um, so understanding has been a lot easier and we have tools now like WhatsApp. So um, we are able to text. So I'm able to text with my siblings in Colombia and my birth mom and go back and forth like that. And I also uh, have my mother-in-law because I married a half Colombian man. So she's been helping translate and it's a little less awkward with someone who's in the family helping communicate. Um, but we are, um, I'm going to Columbia in November. I'm very, very excited. Mid-November, I'm going to meet my birth mom for the first time. And she's very excited too. And we're both like nervous, but like hopeful, but don't want to get like too excited. <laughs> so it, it, it's like a whole mix of emotions right now. I know, Melissa, that a lot of your work is aimed more at adoptive parents. It's right in the title of your book, but also like the general public who has opinions on adoption. And so when they hear about something in the news with Colin Kaepernick or um, Michael Ower from The Blind Side or your own Huffington Post article, what do they get wrong? What is not known about adoption and transracial adoption by John Q. Public? I think the easier question there would be like, what do they get right? <laughs> Um, because honestly, it's still those like same old stories of just like this poor orphan or this poor kid in foster care was taken in by this uh, wealthy white couple and given opportunities that they never would have. And then they ride off into the sunset happily ever after. That's where people want the story to end. They never really want to see what comes after unless it's like a reunion story on TV that they can exploit in the news. They love those videos. <laughs> so I think like with stories like um, with people like Michael Orr and Colin Kaepernick, I think we're seeing adult adoptees finally taking charge of the reins and saying, hey, this is my story. I was adopted. I was in foster care, put in conservatorship. 
you only really know one side of that. You know it from the perspective of the adoptive parents. You only know what you think you know about adoption. And if I, if like the general public would talk to an adoptee or a birth parent for more than just five minutes, they would have like a better understanding of it. But like so many people, they're just so quick. To, to hang super tight to these toxic positivity adoption narrative tropes that they don't want to let them go. So we have Michael Orr now like coming out in the news and saying, hey, like I was told I was adopted. They didn't do that. They also did X, Y, and Z. That is a huge shock, not only to him as an adult and an adoptee, like who he thought he was an adoptee, but also like his whole world, like he, it was framed on this concept of these people who he trusted, who he wanted to like appease and love and care for, were supposed to have his best interests at heart. And they hurt him deeply, whether intentional or not. The point is, is that he's now taking power back over his story and sharing his full experience. And you don't have to believe somebody else's experience to validate them and just hear them out. And I think that a lot of people would have so much to learn from adoptees if they just open their hearts to listening to a different perspective. And like we mentioned with my mom earlier, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It's not going to be an easy process. But if adoption is what we were told, it's about giving a child a better life, a better experience, shouldn't we be supporting the adopted and foster child throughout their entire life and not just from their cute little cuddly stage till they're out of the house at 18? Preach. I'm just, I just want to say, yeah, I've got goosebumps. You so well articulated, Melissa. <laughs> yes. I think one of the issues too, I mean, I, you know, we've talked about this on this show before, but it just, it takes so long. Um, I mean, it, it took a long time in your case because you didn't know that you were adopted, but it takes a long time. We're, we're, we're well beyond that cute cuddly stage by the time we realize, oh wait, there's more to the story. We, the adoptee, don't realize there's more to the story for quite a long time. And so um, there's a big shift that happens. And I think that delay ends up just shocking adoptive parents because they too, even though, you know, I think, I think we can be hard to raise, you know, or I will speak for myself. I was hard to raise. And, and so I think there's a, a lack of honesty or lack of wanting to say that could be adoption. Um, maybe there's something in play here, some attachment dynamics. Um, and then it's kind of a big shocker. Um, so I think that that feeds into this just, I think adoptive parents help feed that narrative because they want to believe it so bad. They want to believe that, um, that it's, that it is that sparkly, wonderful rainbows and unicorns, happy story. And like, I think a degree of that is just when we hear that adoptive parents are making mistakes is so quick to like, to come on the defensive. It's like, oh, if I make a mistake, that means I'm a bad parent. No. No, 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 take a step back. It isn't that simple. We're, that's the whole point here. Adoption isn't blasting, hey, you're not a good or bad parent. Like, you're a parent, you're doing your best, you've made a mistake. But adoption narratives and education, we also have to hold these industries accountable because the information that adoptive parents are getting 
are typically coming from these sources that haven't changed their programming and instruction and uh, updated their research in how many years? And then when they are introduced to like new ideas and like adult foster youth and adult adoptees, they're like, oh, we don't have the budget for that. We don't have the budget for that. But let's do a fundraiser and raise $50,000, $60,000 and sell in t-shirts so another family can adopt a child. You, They prioritize where the money is gonna go based on what profits they're going to get. And that's why I, primarily am working with adoptive parents in some regards because adoptive parents hold a lot of power. Adoptive and foster parents hold a lot of power here because without your time, your money, your resources, the adoption industry wouldn't have anywhere to go. And it's that way that we have to recognize that in order to make progress, to make adoption more ethical, more child-centered, make adoptive parents have proper resources pre and post, make sure that birth parents have enough resources pre and post adoption, and that these things aren't just being swept under the rug anymore. And it, we also are so, somewhat lucky that, you know, there's more accountability with social media, we are able to communicate and like, talk about these things in the news and stories are being picked up. And when we see stories like Colin Kaepernick and Michael Orr, you'll, since you guys are part of the adoption community online, you'll see so many adoptees being like, we aren't surprised here. Why are you? Why are you surprised? We are here. We've been here talking about this. Why is this the first time that you are listening? And are you going to continue? Or are you going to shy away because it's too hard? I think that's one reason I really loved listening to you talk about your mom. Because when she was faced with kind of digging into her original beliefs or attuning to you and delivering to you, setting all that aside and, to, and giving you what you needed, she chose you. And that just gives me so much, um, that grace that you two gave each other. That gives me hope for other adoptive families who have suffered some, some sort of a breach of trust or um, delayed conversations, that it can, be, it can be remedied. It's not the end, you know, get, like, like you said earlier, go ahead and get uncomfortable to get comfortable again and choose your, choose your adoptee over your beliefs. Thank you. Yeah, my mom, I, she's like my best friend. She She's the one who created this. There's a, a whole bunch of other ones that she did for me. She's my biggest fan. She's my best friend. We talk almost every single day. And some people, like, they'll see adoptees like me speaking out about adoption and the struggles that we've had, and they'll just assume, oh, you don't love your mom. You're unloved. You're ungrateful. You hate your family. Like, no, I don't hate my family. I love my family very much, but I love both of my families. I love my adoptive family and I love my birth family. And that's what we need room for. We need room for not just saying it's okay for adoptees to do what you think is acceptable. I love that. We need room for both cultures or all cultures. Um, we need room for all all families, all family members. Do you feel like you're getting that now? Are you with with it? Are you? Do you feel less of a split? Does it feel like both sides have come together? You know, in a sense, for you. Oh, definitely. Like 
holidays, family parties now, it's the regular for my mom to, if she's just stopping by to see my kids, her grandson, she'll pick up like a little picture book that's in a, a Spanish and English. She'll um, drop off little like dolls or stuff like that. She'll listen to cartoons in Spanish. She'll read picture books to them <laughs> because my mom is super amazing with languages. So she does speak some Spanish. Um, so just like having these little things just normalize in our house and her just, you know, like she's not shying away from it. It's not like awkward. It's not like her coming over and I'm forcing her to sit there and dress up and sing along and dance salsa. Like, no, she is like authentically doing this from a place of love in her heart. And she's just like, this is part of our family now. I want my kids to feel welcome. I want my grandchildren to feel welcome. And it's just been normalized. And it's been normalized because we had those tough conversations. What I'm also hearing is that your mom was able to go from being the mom of the child to being to learning from you and almost like like switching that a little bit in, in your areas of expertise. And so in a way, you've developed like a true partnership where you give each other things that you need on an even basis, which is just such a beautiful thing for um, parents of young adults or adults is to have that 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 new relationship, which isn't as imbalanced as it has to be the first 18 or 20 years. She fell into that or she accepted that role of of, of, of shifting. I can also yeah. imagine too that like that feeling that you talked about earlier about your parents families maybe not being as, as accepting and that fear of her um that ostracizing feeling that she she wanted to prevent for you as as children um maybe she's also recognizing that she doesn't want to make you feel that way because of her actions either and and really just taking that step forward into probably a really unknown territory for her um has probably been I don't know we're just really healing for for everybody and you probably your whole like line down generations to come so Thank you. Yeah, I I talk to my mom about like intergenerational healing all the time. And it's honestly really beautiful to see how she has come and just like talking about like just adoption and about race um, so seamlessly now that if she ever heard like an uncle or a great uncle make a comment that was like a microaggression. She would have just been like, oh, let's not stir the pot. Let's just ignore it and let bygones be bygones. Now she knows that that hurts me, that hurts my kids. And she won't tolerate anymore because she understands how harmful it can be for us. And so she stands up for us and she'll tell her 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 brother whoever is like you know you can't say things like that you know like and it's really healing after so long of being hidden from your culture to now being able to embrace it and then also have a parent who loves you fully without like feeling like you have to hide parts of yourself gosh I'm just in awe I mean I just you know um for you just I'm so happy for you that that's where, what you're getting. And that's so huge just in, for any parent to give to their child 
And then of course, for an adoptee, that's what our hearts yearn for. That's what we need. So um, I'm so happy for you, Melissa. Thank you. I'm curious with all of the, um, you know, you, you, you teach to so many adoptive parents, what are, what are some of the things that give you hope that you're seeing happening um, now with parents who are, I think even just one thing, they're reading your book, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, we all love it when someone reads our books, but um, I think like one of like my favorite things is to get DMs from adoptive parents or even adoptees who are just like, hey, look at this video, this article. I never would have thought of it before following your Instagram or your TikTok. Like I never thought about how exploitative these things are or like I never even thought that it like I should start having these conversations with my child when they're three and four um, and just like having those like little light bulb moments where they they sit down think about things in a way that they never would have before and they're like and all that is just like from a nugget because I put out there and I shared my experience and um, this summer a few months ago I did a workshop with my mom and we talked about being a late discovery adoptee and her experience as well and I had so many of like the moms and the adopted kids like who are now adults like come and say like, this was so healing for us to see like a mom and daughter be able to talk about adoption openly and just be able to like not like just be butting heads and just have an open conversation that was constructive that you validated one another and that you show the growth and you show the love and you see what it can do because we're not talking about like finances and um structures of a building we're talking about people we're talking about families there's so many emotions tied to everything here that it we have to sometimes give each other grace because without taking the time to to understand where my mom was coming from, I don't think we would be here where we are today. Is there anything we haven't asked you, Melissa, that we should, that we should ask you like, uh, or that you wanted to talk about and we haven't gone there yet? Uh, I mean, we covered a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, anybody can find me at adoptethoughts.com all my things are linked there um i am updating like my social media with um my reunion trip so i've been posting clips and preparation for that so if you want to hear more about that make sure you're following me on socials it's all adoptee underscore thoughts um and yeah i think that's it for now i'm so excited for you for your reunion trip i will be definitely be following and I'm so glad you get to meet your first mom in person. It's just, yeah, all the feelings, everything. Melissa, we're so appreciative of you coming on and talking to us and divulging all the the details of of what it's been for what it's been like for you as a late discovery adoptee and and how you're continuing to like forge a path um, with your family and for the generations to come. It's super inspiring. So we will send everybody over to adoptee thoughts on Instagram and TikTok, and yeah, we wish you, we wish you all the best on your reunion trip. That's so, so exciting. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to read your guys's book. When does it come out? Again? December 1st. Oh, it's coming up. It's so yeah. exciting. <laughs>
Thanks to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, rate, and share wherever you listen to help others find adoption unfiltered. It's through healthy engagement that we can make the changes needed for all those impacted by adoption. Visit adoptionunfiltered.com for other episodes and more information about our other projects.